I mean, this is the problem with this movie. Is it so thinly connected to actual history? <laughs> That's the problem. Every other thing is perfect. Like I said, arguably medieval. One thing that was surprising to me, but there were two things. Number one, this is a film made in 1986 with lots of violence. And I believe not a single boob. No, there are boobs. We counted boobs. Where were the yeah. boobs? Heather's boobs. Heather's boob stays there. It doesn't quite get out. No, you see Heather's boobs. We paid attention. Oh, man. Yeah. How could my 16-year-old self how could you, this? How, how could your 51-year-old self forget about I Heather's don't know. boobs? Recorded in our Nerdhaven studios, this is Pop Medieval, your hosts, Dr. Richard Scott Noakes and Nina McNamara, discussing the intersection of medieval literature and pop culture on a semi-weekly basis. And now, back to your podcast. What, Doc? What, Nina? Well... Here we are, born to be kings. <laughs> We're the princes of the universe. We are. At least I am. <laughs> Fighting for survival. I'm... Sorry, I need to point out I made Engineer Mike very upset right now. <laughs> and in fact, we're doing this episode as a little bit of revenge on him for picking out the last last movie for <laughs> November this year, which was... The Name of the Rose, or Der Dama de Rosa. Yes, you and I did not like it, and he he really legitimately loves that film. He did, and he hates this next film, which is, of course, do you want to introduce it? This is Highlander. Highlander, yes. Highlander, a movie we've been talking about doing since we started this this podcast, and we just never did it, and uh, finally we... I was going to say pulled the trigger, but I need we 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 drew the sword from the hilt and we drew, er, to, from we drew the, the sword from the scabbard, yes. and we uh, cut off this head. Yes, <laughs> the metaphor got lost. I'm sorry. Now I have I have to say just so this is clear because some people because I I have a sense of humor about this. I unironically love this movie. There's no irony in any of this. Now, I will make jokes about it because I know there's some slightly ridiculous elements in it, but I legit love this movie. So I want that to be clear from the get-go. I'm not putting on. It's really how I feel. This is another movie from 1986, and I believe you called it that that's another great year for these type of films, these weird one-off fantasy sci-fi movies. Although Highlander did spawn several sequels and a television show in the 90s um none of them good i don't know what you're talking about there can be only <laughs> one there are there is no oh, nothing but the original oh nice <laughs> nice i walked into that one but very good but we are talking about the 1986 original highlander film a canon films <laughs> piece de resistance <laughs> if you want to talk that's how you know it's good it's canon films yes Exactly. If our listeners are confused about our emphasis on canon films, please look that up because there is a ton of great canon films out there in their oeuvre. But yes, let's let's get started talking about Highlander. Doc, go ahead and, and run through the overview of this fantastic, wonderful, unironically <laughs> wonderful film. Okay, so uh, some years ago, a few years ago, I went to write the plot of a book and I had an idea and I started moving, playing with the idea and noodling around with it and coming up with something. And I started finally drafting it out. And when I got it drafted out, I looked and realized that what I had drafted out was accidentally Highlander. I had rewritten Highlander slightly differently 
And my version was not as good as this. And one of the reasons is this version cuts between timelines. So, mm-hmm. so I'm not actually going to describe what happens in the sequence that happens on the screen, but rather I'm going to describe what happens in the sequence that happens in time uh, because this jumps back sure. and forth in time a little bit. All right, so I, I will start in the present moment. For uh, so this sure. this opens with an unidentified man who is at uh, a wrestling match in Madison Square Garden, and he's acting real creepy. He goes down to the to the parking garage, gets in a sword fight with some guy who attacks him. The two of them have swords uh, after a, a long and exciting battle. Although Engineer Mike might disagree with the This happens excitement. in the first five minutes yes. of the film. Yes, he cuts the guy's head off. And then all sorts of weird electricity bumps all over the place and he takes off in the car and then we bounce back in time. And that's when we get the backstory. And so the backstory is this. There's a guy, his name is Connor McLeod. He is in the Scotch Highlands in the 16th century and he's going off to his first battle. We find out there that there's a bad guy who later on we'll find out is called the Kurgan. Some bad guy who's made a deal with their enemies and says, I'm going to help you lead this attack, but... No one's allowed to fight that guy except me. He's mine. And we don't know why. So he goes and he, this attack comes and no one will fight Connor. And this bad guy comes and stabs him and tries to cut his head off. But because he's mobbed by other people is unable to do so. And so Connor is about to die, but he doesn't. And the next day he's fine. He's totally healed. So his people freak out. They don't know what to do about this. They think that maybe he's a witch. This is the early modern era. Really not the late medieval era when there really were big witch trials, especially in, in uh, there were some in Scotland too uh, at that time. Mm-hmm. And so they drive him out. So he's driven out for a couple, or for a few years, not sure what's happened. And then some weird Spaniard who claims to be Egyptian played by Sean Connery shows up and he is not acting like a Spaniard, not acting like an Egyptian. He's acting like Sean Connery. And he says, Hey, guess what? You're immortal and uh, you can never die. So he explains to him the rules of being an immortal. And there's this quickening where lightning comes down on him. And he's, I guess, frozen in in that current age. And he says, basically, immortals can only be be killed by cutting off one another's heads. They have a few vague and not actually super impressive powers uh, that don't really come into effect at all in the plot. I'm not really sure why they're why they're mentioned. Something about running with animals. Yeah, running with with animals. Yes. but the thing, but he tells them a couple things. They can cut off one another's heads and essentially take the power of the other one. No one will fight on holy ground. You're not allowed to fight on holy ground. That's tradition, he says. And that they'll all be drawn someday in the future to some faraway land for one final fight. And there can be only one. This is the refrain throughout. There can be only one. Only one person will will be able to take the prize. Whatever the prize is, actually. It's not clear. Like, some sort of major power. Actually, even after after the end, it's still vague. We never really figure that out. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And Sean Connery's been around for some thousands of years at this point. Well, it turns out this, this bad guy, his name is the Kurgan. He is a Kurgan. We'll talk about that later. He shows up looking for Connor, kills uh, Sean Connery, and for some reason goes away and doesn't come back and kill Connor. That's never made clear why. Uh, just sort of leaves. 
And Connor's just going, sort of going through time. He seems to be wanting to mostly live in peace. He's sad because his wife dies of old age and he stays the same age. We get different little adventures he has in this story. And then we get to the present again. Uh, and in the present, we're now introduced to the love interest. Love interest is played by Roxanne Hart. And I can't remember the character's name. She is supposed to be some sort of forensics consultant for the NYPD. They find some shards of metal there. The shards of metal, they ask her to analyze. She analyzes them and finds out they're really old metal treated in a way that it shouldn't have been. And she's just amazed by this and trying to research where did this shard of the sword come from? Where did the sword come from? This would be a historical anomaly. So she's sort of trailing Connor. Connor's sort of trailing her. The police are investigating, investigating him and then they start looking at her because she's there. The upshot is they sort of begin to get a romantic connection. At this point, Finally, everyone is killed except the Kurgan and Connor, uh, which is Christopher Lambert. The Kurgan wants to get Connor to his final, uh, to the final battle. So he kidnaps mm -hmm. Roxanne Hart, takes her to the top of a, of a movie studio, Silver Cup Studios. <laughs> and she's the, essentially the damsel in distress there. Uh, yeah. So finally, Connor shows up. There's a lot of back and forth, of course. I'm, I'm skipping out on lots of violence to show us the Kurgan is a very, very, very bad guy. And they fight. Connor wins. And wins the prize, which is something. Electricity? Yeah, so I, I, he says he know. can read people's thoughts and help them understand one another. Uh, I'm not really sure that was worth cutting off people's heads for thousands of years, but there you go. Uh, and then he says, oh, and I can grow old and die. Well, great. So the prize is now good for another 50 years and then... We're back to where we were, yeah. I guess. So, um, yeah, I, I mean, it shows them. It's uh, Connor and Brenda's the characters. Oh, name. Brenda, yes, thank you. Yeah, they're back in Scotland and they're wearing pastels and they're, I guess, they're communicating telepathically. I, I don't know if they're actually speaking to one another. I, I didn't. Um, I, I think they're communicating telepathically. I thought that was a voiceover from a previous conversation. I didn't know. I mean, I, I mean it could ending. be telepathically. Um, he does say he could read minds, but. She doesn't, I guess she's not surprised by that, but uh, anyway, yes, it's very I, unclear. I, the, the, at, at the end, yeah. all, the prize is a MacGuffin that's never revealed, real, never truly revealed. Is the prize mortality? Is that what we're supposed to take away from that? Maybe, but if so, everyone who got their head cut off already won the prize <laughs> because they're yeah, all dead. So, so I'm not really man, sure what to make yeah. of that. I, I've always thought the prize was a kind of, just a total MacGuffin. And in the end, there's there's no... No sense of what the prize truly would be. Uh, because, of course, Sean Connery basically doesn't know what the prize is. But then they keep saying, oh, if the Kurgan gets the prize, it'll be terrible for everyone. Given how little the prize does for Connor, I'm not so sure how bad it would be for everyone if the Kurgan got it. But uh, there you go. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the story of Highlander. It's basically a plot around an unnamed MacGuffin. So a bunch of guys can run around through New York City, New York City and run around through time cutting off one another's heads. My explanation of this movie is a blind Frenchman playing a Scotsman befriends a Scotsman with a speech impediment playing an Egyptian from Spain fighting a <laughs> giant anime character. True. I think this is all true. It's absolutely preposterous, but I had so much fun from beginning to end. Now, I want to point out, Engineer Mike asked something before this. He said in a, a chat earlier that the Kurgan, he recognized the Kurgan, but he didn't know from where. The Kurgan is Clancy Brown. Clancy Brown, really excellent. And uh, Clancy Brown is the voice of Mr. Krabs on SpongeBob SquarePants. And I cannot tell you how many times I have uh, thought of Mr. Krabs 
saying, there could be only one SpongeBob uh, and things uh, <laughs> along those lines. So maybe that's the prize. You get to be a semi, a, a semi-rich hamburger magnate under the sea. Maybe. See, he, yeah, Clancy Brown is a very famous character actor. If you look him up, he's been in just about everything. And he's a very prolific voice actor, like you're, like you pointed out. Yeah. He's got a very distinctive face. He looks like a bad guy. Like, you would cast him as a villain in just about everything. He was a bad guy in The Green Mile. He was... Mm, that's right, yeah. yeah. Yeah, he's been a lot of things. Uh, but again, this is our second movie in a row where we have Sean Connery just being the most Scottish non-Scot Hold Ever. on. He was a bad guy in the Shawshank Redemption, not the Green Mile. Wrong prison movie. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know what? I knew what you were talking about. As soon as it came yeah. out of my mouth, I thought, wait, that's not right. Right. Yeah. Shawshank, not Green Mile. So this movie, we were talking before we started recording, but this movie is arguably medieval. At one point they say that you know this is 1536 Scotland, so it's outside of the you know, the, the medieval ages, but we really have to do this because it's, it's right up our alley. Yeah. I mean, arguably like all the Kurosawa samurai films are Mm -hmm. done in the modern era, but it is the samurai Mm -hmm. age. And so it very much is medieval. And I I think this is the case here too. At the very least, this is a medievalist movie. I would certainly call it exactly for that reason, even though historically it doesn't fall there, but let's be honest, historically, this movie doesn't fall much of anywhere. It really doesn't, no. Yeah. And I, I made a joke uh, just a few minutes ago about Christopher Lambert. Um, he is severely myopic, if you look up the trivia for him, um, and he can't see without his glasses. So all the sword fighting, if you notice the sword fighting in this movie and in the subsequent uh, Highlander films, which, you know, we're agreeing that do not exist, he's really, really bad at it. And it, that's because he can't see. I always thought he had an interesting sort of steady gaze. He's- where he, yeah, he's got a thousand yard stare. Yes. And only after you told me a few years ago that mm-hmm. he he really couldn't see, did I realize, oh, his smoldering gaze is actually just him putting his eyes on the mark. You know, he's, where's my mark? Okay, yeah. that's where I'm looking. That's where my face is going mm-hmm. to be. And he's not focused yeah. on the thing. Uh, yeah. But it works for him. It's like his him. head turns and then his eyes. Yeah. Yeah, it really works for him. So he's got that going for him. So let's let's talk about the quickening. It's also something I don't quite understand what's going on. It's extremely orgasmic. Like things are yes. bursting and exploding. I mean, at one point, the very beginning where he chops off that one guy's head at in the, the parking deck, there's a hose that gets erect and then drips water. I mean, it's it's extremely scandalous. They weren't afraid for the Freudian imagery of the- in this canon film, right? Yeah. Okay, what do you think is going on with the quickening? Or is he just absorbing powers? And if so, what powers is he absorbing? Because we've established that we don't know what the immortals are doing other than being immortal. Okay, so the the first quickening, the first real quickening, I think, freezes them at that age. Uh, which, mm-hmm. since Sean Connery is a generation older than Christopher Lambert, suggests that Sean Connery was quite a bit older when that happened, I guess. What happens after that, it doesn't seem like they get noticeably more powerful. However, they don't seem to have super strength at any point in time, except when they're fighting. And then we see yeah. when Christopher Lambert is in the in the parking garage, he takes a real hunk out of a load-bearing pillar under Madison Square Garden. And then later on, when the Kurgan and Sean Connery uh, are fighting in Connor's tower, which he'd only been driven away from his village for four years. So how the heck he built this tower in four years? I don't know. 
They're literally <laughs> knocking down whole walls out of this giant stone tower from their super strength that they didn't appear to have at any other point in the story. So I don't know if they always are super strong and they just never use it, or if the super strength only comes when they are, when they're fighting. I have concerns about the structural integrity of that parking deck because that pillar, that pylon, was made of styrofoam. Because <laughs> <laughs> if you if you watch that fight scene, they took that chunk out and it was nothing but gray styrofoam. Yes, yeah, so, well, so, that's true. Yeah, just concerns there. I wanted to point this out. You you mentioned his adventures through time, mm -hmm. um, and it's done with like vignettes. Yes. Like there's that one like 1700s, 1800s vignette where he's having that duel, like that Hamilton style duel with um, Hotchkiss. Yeah, on, I think Hotchkiss on is Boston the, Common. Yeah. So I guess that's in the U.S. Yeah. yeah. That's done for for laughs, obviously. But then in we watched the uh, director's cut. Yes. Um, and I don't think this is on the original cut. You're right. Maybe it is. I, I don't know. But uh, we watched the director's cut. There is the explanation for how he met his secretary. Yes. And his secretary was a, uh, a World War II German orphan. And it's done so well. It's like, it's way too good for this movie. You know what I mean? When I saw that, when I saw it originally, I always, you know, I remember watching this when I'm 16 years old. And thinking, mm -hmm. she clearly has a crush on him. Why? Mm -hmm. She clearly knows something's up. Yeah. Why doesn't she? What's going on here? Why aren't they romantically connected? If she has a crush on him, why is she connected? And, and none of that made any sense to me until years later when I saw the director's cut and got this. We got yeah. this explanation, which then made a lot more sense to me. You were saying what happens then? Okay, so his secretary is a bit older. Like, I mean, she's. And I hate using that term, older. She's, like, in her 50s or 60s. Like, maybe late 50s, early 60s. Um, she's more of an established yeah. it's woman. It's supposed to be 80-something, and she's a child in World War II. So she might be yeah. pushing 60, actually, I guess. Probably. My math might be a bit off. But he he rescued her from Nazis. Yes. And uh, he, yeah, he, like, covered her with his body, and uh, Nazis shot him. And, of course, him being immortal, he survived that. He rose up and he managed to wrestle the the rifle away from the Nazi and shot the Nazi. And he delivered the best line in the whole movie, too. Yes. This is my favorite scene in the movie, and yet it is was not in the original theatrical release. No, and it's, it's such a shame because everyone missed out on it. But anyway, the Nazi voices some surprise in German, and uh, either you understand what he says or you don't. It's better if you don't understand. And with the rifle in his hand, Connor says, whatever you say, Jack, you are the master race. <laughs> and then just shoots the Nazi. It, it's great. It's it's a moment of just, oh my gosh. Yeah. That's hilarious. But it, it's it's pillared between, or I'm sorry, it's it's sandwiched between these two scenes of him talking to his secretary, whose name is Rachel, by the way. Oh, yes. He's talking to Rachel and she's expressing concern for him. Then it cuts to this scene, this flashback scene, and then back to him and Rachel talking and it is so touching. Like, I mean, I, I was wiping tears away. That's how touching it is. And it does not deserve to be in this movie. Now, I love this movie. Don't get me wrong. But it is way too good. Like, are, this is this is a vignette that belongs in, in another movie. There are some elements of this movie where you can see, you know, I mean, canon films with, like, all those American Ninja movies and things. I mean, they're not known for mm -hmm. their for their... They're not known for subtlety. But, so, for example, the opening scene of this is everyone up above is watching the fake fight of the wrestling. And down below mm -hmm. Madison Square Garden 
is the real fight that's not just going on below them, but been going on beneath the surface of all society. And it opens with this metaphor uh, for what's happening. You can sort of see they had a real idea there. And they had this yeah. idea about the the relationship he has with Rachel. Why she clearly has a crush on him. They're not romantically connected. Mm-hmm. What's going on here? Well, because he raised her from a child, right? And so she's... Yeah, he's and, and, not going to see her as a love interest. Yes, yeah. right. And yet she sort of decades later still has this crush on him and we so we go through it we see there's several times that we have these metaphors that work out they either work well or are interesting in some way so anyway right. you, you had some you had some questions about this this about the medieval stuff in this i do so is there any precedent for medieval wrestling or wrestling sure wrestling was you know wrestling is a low equipment sport right Although you had balls in those days, you didn't have rubber, so you didn't have rubber balls in those days. And so a lot of the sports that we think about today were not really possible or were done in very different ways. And so they'd have grappling or wrestling. The the, the Vikings would do a kind of wrestling that was like swimming wrestling, and you're kind of like having a swimming contest, but the swimming contest is not just a race, but you're trying to wrestle the other person uh, to mm-hmm. stop them. And actually, I'd like to point out that that Dr. Stephen Mulberger in Formal Combats in the 14th Century, you know, he talks about the formal combats. And a lot of that is swordsmanship, but some of that is also grappling. And so when you see the word grappling in these medieval texts, you also need to think that they're really talking about wrestling. So wrestling would be really a part of any kind of sporting event. Uh, it's a basic kind okay. of combat that is done with not a whole lot of danger and not a whole lot of equipment. Okay, so it's it's like a couple of steps below jousting and that there's it's low risk. I mean, you know, there's still bodily harm, but it's low risk in that no one is necessarily going to die from it. And there's no like throwing down of the gauntlet or anything like that. Yeah, and it's cheap. Not only do you, don't you have a weapon and thus it's safer, you don't have a weapon and it's cheaper. So your local peasant could be a great and well-known wrestler. So wrestling mm-hmm. wrestling oh. definitely was a thing that, that would be done by oh, young men everywhere, I'm sure. Okay, and so my next question is about the Kurgan. I know you wanted mm-hmm. to talk about him a little bit. But oh, sure. Now, is that, yeah, is that a real soldier? Like, is there a real-life counterpart to the Kurgan? Like a, a mercenary or something like that? So this is another one of these places where... It feels like they have ideas behind this movie that are more than just a bunch of guys running around trying to get a MacGuffin and cutting off one another's heads. So the Kurgans were, I don't know that they had a reputation for throwing children to wild dogs, as Sean Connery says (laughs) uh, in there. But the Kurgans were a real people who lived on what I think we'd call the Russian steppes today. And they're a very old people. And there's this idea that, that the Kurgan is quite old. Um, Kurgan is, is a nationality. It's an ethnic group. And the interesting thing about this, which I believe this research came out in the 70s, as I recall. But one of our best candidates for the speakers of Proto-Indo-European language, which I'll talk about in a second, were the Kurgans. And so what is Proto-Indo-European? Well, you might have heard that like, of course, English and German and Norwegian and Icelandic, these are all related languages. And Mm -hmm. French and Spanish, and uh, these are related languages. But actually, those are all also interrelated in a very, very large language group called Indo-European. And this includes Hindi, for example, in India. I believe it includes Farsi, Afrikaans, Romani, all these different languages are included in a wide range all throughout Europe, the Middle East, and all the way into the Asian subcontinent. 
Now, not every language in those areas today is related in that way. But what we mean when we say language is related isn't just that they have loan words, but rather they descend from the same speakers of that language. And so it is possible then that everyone who speaks English and Farsi and Hindi and German and Spanish, that all these people, their language descends from the language of the Kurgans, that they might have been the kind of wow. originator. Yes. And so this, this implication of a kind of primitive and old person, I, I believe this research came out in the 70s. And so having this in the 80s, it's such an obscure people group that you can't imagine a lot of people knowing about. I guess I've, I've thought, I, of course, I didn't know this when I was 16 watching it in Melody Drive-In Movie Theater. Uh, but but when I get older and realize what the Kurgans were, I guess I always um, I always thought like maybe this is was the idea they were getting at. This shows the ultimate age of the Kurgan, uh, that he's from that people group. So we really should have had the Kurgan around, maybe not as the one, but definitely around just so we could have studied his language. That would have been great, actually. The yeah. Kurgan could have gotten great wealth by being consultant to linguists around the world. So. <laughs> And then, okay, so my final question is about the gathering, because there's this talk about the gathering where all the immortals get together and, I guess, chop each other's heads off. Um, the <laughs> idea behind that, is that is that the me medieval concept of a witan? Well, they did have, like, the Vikings had this idea of the thing, uh, or the all thing, mm -hmm. which was the big thing, and it was called the thing, and it was this gathering of people. Now, the witan would be a gathering of wise people. Oh, okay. I don't so know. These guys weren't that smart. Yeah, I don't know if these guys can be considered wise uh, so much as tough guys. These are more like the thing Okay. that they're gathered together. And what's interesting is they seem to have relationships. There's a bunch of them that seem to have basically decided, well, let's just be friends. We're not going to cut off one another's heads, maybe unless we get to be the last ones. Uh, yeah. but, but in point of fact, when there are down to three of them, Connor... Meets up with one of them, who I cannot remember where Castigar. Castigar, yes. Uh, who, yeah. by the way, of everyone in the movie, the sword fighting that the actor that Castigar does is some of the most pathetic stuff I've ever seen. It was shot in the dark, and it should have been shot in even darker dark than that, because he's... I, I don't know about his vision, so It was very, very bad, you. this actor. He, he yeah. looked good. Uh, he, he looked like a fun guy at a party, but uh, no, he was not a, a great... Swordsman. Even though, by the way, the swordmaster on this was the great Bob Anderson, the greatest of the Hollywood swordmasters. Interesting. Wow. Yes. So he has no excuse. He has no excuse. Bob Anderson, who every major medieval film and Star Wars, every major medieval and medievalist film, he, mm. he's been the guy who, who did this. Uh, anyway, so wow. Castigear, there's only three of them left. And when Castigear and, uh, and Connor meet on a bridge... They just drink together and talk, uh, and that's it. And it's down to the three of them at that point, which is weird. They don't even agree to team up and kill the Kurgan together. Uh, so the Kurgan gets Castigear, cuts his head off, and then that's it, I guess. Down to the last two. Yeah. They don't have a game plan for when they've both annihilated the Kurgan, and it's just the two of them. There's not a lot of character development for Castigear at that point. He just shows up at the bridge and then later dies. No, and we're even told he's at that party in Boston Common, but he's not in that scene at all. It's just alluded to that he and Connor threw a party together. Yeah, he's like, remember when that happened and I wasn't there? And like, okay. <laughs> yes. But. Okay, so I have to tell you, though, before we get into uh, recommendation stuff, I have to tell you how important this, this movie was to me. 
Now, as I've mentioned okay. before, I believe 1986 to be the greatest year in film history. I'll hold it up You're against You're collecting receipts on that. I am, yes. <laughs> and if we go through it, just movie after movie. And I used to think that that was because I was 16 years old and had a car in a town with a drive-in in 1986. So people are trying to guess my age. Pretty good at math. You can figure that out. But going back and looking at the films that, that came out that year, it was really phenomenal. But this film, it had a special impact on me because it just so happened that I think it was the later that year or the next year when it came out on, on video, uh, that was the year that my high school decided to do the musical Camelot. And we had a fencing. Camelot. Yes, that one. Exactly. And we had a fencing <laughs> club. I was in the fencing club. What they decided was, well, we actually have fencers. So mm-hmm. we can do a little bit of training in how to use broadswords and things. And we can have stunts. And instead of using plastic or tinfoil uh, swords, we can use real swords. We'll just blunt them. We use real swords and we'll have real sword fights and we will practice them on stage. All right, we'll, we'll practice them. And this is what we Sounds did. smart. Yes. Well, it was great, right? And, and it was, our, our sword fights were just phenomenal because i think you know people see a bunch of high school kids walking around with swords and they don't think much of it right all they think is uh oh that's a prop that's a prop right well then the swords fights would start and sparks would be flying all over and you know it was visceral and you could feel everything right and so what happened was our first performance was not actually a public performance it was they brought in the kids from the elementary school to watch it and (laughs) There's nothing that a third grader hates more than a musical of people singing about how they feel about a king, right? This was not their jam <laughs> at all. And we're bombing, right? But I don't care. Yeah. You know, I've got like three lines in it. I'm Sir Sagramore. I got like three lines. I actually die twice. I have to have a costume change so I can die more than once in the, in the play. And we go and we, we go out there and we do the sword fights and... What do third graders love? Sword fights. We did the sword fights and yeah. it went from we're bombing to they're literally standing on their chairs, cheering and screaming. Ah! It was like, it was, it was incredible. So we got like really pumped up by this. So every, every, I forget why it happened the first time, but every yeah. subsequent performance of this couple hours before the performance we'd all hang out in the band room where we were getting ready and waiting and going over the lines and instead of doing what we were supposed to do we watched highlander we watched it before every single performance we watched highlander and so when we went out there we were not out there doing we were vaguely doing our choreography but what we were really doing was we were being the highlanders uh in this and every single night that we performed it there was some sort of injury uh some sort of there was blood somewhere someone would end up in the hospital no one ended up in the hospital with something severe right and the one night we didn't have an injury we accidentally literally brought the curtain down by knocking someone back by hitting them with way too much force knocking them back into the the stage curtain and they pulled the curtain down you know halfway down off of the thing and it was quite an expensive fix and so highlander will always have in my heart a very very 
special place. This is an amazing story, and this shows dedication because you literally bled for your craft. I so would I... bleed for my craft any any time. Yeah. I would probably even Good. bleed for the craft I have now. <laughs> All right, so now that everyone's sat through that very long story of bloodshed, do you have any recommendations for us, Nina? I do. I was very curious because, you know, speaking of sword fights and all that, I was very curious about the world's most expensive medieval sword. Mm. Because I know not too many of them exist that are that old. There are swords that are from recent past, but not many that exist from medieval and beyond because, you know, metal degrades or they belong in museums or the like. They they don't get sold at private auctions too often. So I went and I looked up uh, what I could. There's, you know, some questionable links that I could <laughs> find, but here's what I found that's most common. The most expensive medieval sword that I found is a Kamakura Katana from the 13th century. So mm. we're talking, you know, Japanese samurai. And in 1992, Dr. Walter Ames Compton sold 1,100 swords from his collection for a total of $8 million in just one day. Wow. That was in 1992, so, you know, do the math on the inflation there. The most precious one was a Kamakura from the 13th century, which he sold to an anonymous collector for the impressive sum of $418,000, making it the most expensive katana ever sold. Wow. And I'm putting a link to that, and you can take a look at the katana in the description of our podcast. All right. Wonderful. I can't wait to see that. Mm -hmm. So my recommendation is another Christopher Lambert movie. Uh, it is a movie. Okay. Now, when I say I'm recommending this, this is an actual ironic recommendation. This is a, okay. This is a bad movie that must be enjoyed in its badness rather than Highlander, which engineer Mike and I will have to fight to the death over whether it is a good movie or not. But Christopher Lambert's 1999 Beowulf, according to... Now, I've seen this film, and according to IMDb, they were told it was it had a budget of $25 million, but it, in fact, had a budget of $3.3 million. And I would say, mm. of that $3.3 million, $3 million do not appear on the screen. It oh is God. a post-apocalyptic, uh, futuristic Beowulf, where Christopher Lambert plays Beowulf himself. The special effects are... So bad that you can, at one point, you see the zipper on the Grendel costume, for example. It is just in every way awful. But I have to admit, I've seen it more than once as a hate watch. So <laughs> if you are if you can't get enough of Christopher Lambert's with sword fighting, cutting limbs off of, of people and monsters, uh, and also you maybe have a bunch of friends over who want to have a good time making fun of a movie, I'd go with... 1999's Beowulf. That is not a sell, but I'm curious. <laughs> it is an accidentally fun movie. It is not intending to be fun, I think, uh, but it is accidentally fun. One of these days, we're just going to have to like watch all of the Beowulf movies and just go like hog wild on our, our grading scale just to see which one is the best. Which one is the worst? Maybe someday we'll have like the month of Beowulf on the podcast. We could do something like that at yeah. some point. Yeah, we could. I mean, if we really hated ourselves, we could do Yes, that. There's some, there are some not good movies out there. <laughs> mm -hmm. There are a lot. This, in fact, I, I think I can say, I think it's the worst of all the Beowulf movies. And that's saying something. Really? Okay, um, now I'm really curious. Yeah. So, I get nothing else. 
How about you, Nina? I just want to say that I am immortal. I have inside me blood of kings. <laughs> and I have no rival. No man can be my equal. That's that's poetry by Queen. Yeah, I, we should mention that the soundtrack of this movie is Queen. <laughs> I can't believe we forgot to mention that. <laughs> the soundtrack of this movie was also the soundtrack of... 1986 for me. It yeah, it's wonderful. I e- I know every single lyric to every single song on this easily, easily. So it's a kind of magic. Mm. So I think we got to get out of 1986 for the next movie though. <laughs> I think we we've should. exhausted everything. Yes. Oh, we have not. There's more 1986, but not not this November. Some other movie. Okay. All right. All right. West New Hall, Nina. West New Hall, Doc. Pop and Evil was recorded under his. Hoster Dr. Richard Scott Noakes and Luna McNamara. Our audio engineer is Engineer Mike. The music is courtesy of Dr. John Jinwright. For more information, visit our website at profawesome.com slash That's P-R-O-F-A-W-E-S-O-M-E dot com slash Thank you for listening. The thing about the Chronicles of Riddick, though, is that after you've sat through it a couple of times, it starts to grow on you, like... Kind of like a cancer. I saw it on some service the other day and I almost watched it. And then I thought, no, nah, I'm not going to watch it. But now I'm going to watch it. I'm going to watch it right up in your face. Mm-hmm.